I'm Grim. I'm Zolgar. That's Kaiju. And this is Two Idiots and a Dog, Idiots on Film. Where we explore movies that we love. Or think are important for pop culture. This week on Two Idiots and a Dog, Idiots on Film, we're talking about the movie District 9. So, we decided to do District 9, well, first of all, because this is our ninth episode and, well, I'm a dork. No argument there. But District 9 is, it's a film that really stuck with me since the first time I saw it. It's one of my favorite movies, and on the surface, District 9 looks like it's a cheap, cheesy sci-fi action flick. Even more so if you look at the early marketing for it. which It it was one of the early movies to have a brilliant viral marketing campaign, but that is beside the point. But if you go into it expecting that action movie, you're going to be disappointed. It is a slower, deeper film, and it has some amazing world-building and serious social and political commentary and serious attention to detail. But before we get into that... How about a quick word from our sponsor? Hey, Zolgar. We should start thinking about the future of Two Idiots and a Dog. We should. But that takes effort. And we are just a couple of idiots. We shouldn't be allowed to decide anything. I got a great idea. Let's sucker our listeners into doing the thinking for us. Okay. But how would that work? Simple. Listener survey. So stupid, it might just work. If you like what we do, we would love to hear your thoughts on the future of Two Idiots and a Dog. We've put together a listener survey, less than 20 questions about the future of the project. All questions are optional, and we don't collect any personal information. It should only take a few minutes of your time, and you can help make Two Idiots and a Dog better. You can find a link to the survey in the description of this episode. You can also find it on our social media pages and Discord server. Citric 9... I'm going to start off by saying that I believe that District 9 is a good movie. It tells a compelling story with a cast of realistic, if not quite likable, characters. That said, though, it is hard to watch in places. Yeah, especially about the first, what, third of the movie has some really hard-to-watch sequences in it. It's... You know, one one of the overarching elements of this movie is the casual racism and horrible mistreatment of the aliens that we come to know as prawns that, unfortunately, you know, we have to call them that because that's the only name we're ever given for them in the movie. Which I think is a very poignant commentary in and of itself that the only name we have for these aliens is our derogatory term for them. Nobody stopped to ask these creatures what they call themselves. And that kind of just sets the whole tone there. The I don't want to spend too much time on these early sequences, but we need to address them because they're so important to the story. Yes, they are that hard to watch that I don't want to dwell on them in this episode. Yeah. You know, because when the movie first opens up, we have the uh the prawns are relegated to the region district 9 and this is basically right in the middle of uh Johannesburg and people are 
upset about that. They they don't want the aliens as their neighbors anymore. So the 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 whole impetus for this film, what really gets the ball rolling initially, is the movement to relocate them to a better place, District 10, which is, as, as is literally said in the movie, little more than a concentration camp. Yeah, and we see the usual casual bigotries of, you know, talking down about them, uh, talking about how it's better for everybody if they're over there. And then we get... Th- some of the uglier things that are still presented casually like the population control team they they find a hut filled with eggs with filled with prawn eggs and they very casually and very is glibly is that the right word yeah glibly is the word destroy them uh we're we are not going to go into detail on the jokes they make or the the commentary about it because honestly we it, we're not comfortable with it and we imagine that there are some of our audience that would be very very uncomfortable hearing this it's yeah, it, it I, is a brutal scene, even though we don't really see anything truly horrendous in it. Like, yeah, it's not uh, we're not at this stage of the movie. We are not looking at body horror and gore. We are looking at just pure social horror. Yeah, it's. Yeah, you know, and another one of the things that they do that is so well, dehumanizing of the prawns is when they're working on the relocation. And they, for basically, purely for show, they are having them sign a form showing that they understand what's going on. And they're convincing these prawns to sign a form saying they agree and understand that they have to be out in 24 hours for a can of cat food which basically is it's a great junk food treat for them it's it's like a freaking twinkie to call back to last last episode yeah and all of these that we see here i mean it's 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 spelled out very plainly uh, that the paramilitary group escorting them through this would be more than happy to just pop a cap on all of these guys and call it a day. Killing them is fun for them. So you do have a little bit of tension between the casual, what I call middle-class racists and the racist racists. But it's still not good by any stretch and the fact of the matter is um as part of our journey with our primary focus character we see worse yeah the main impetus 
for this organization to even be bothering with them other than external political pressure is they want their technology and their technology will only work for them because it's biotech that's gene coded to the prawn species and as the story progresses and our main character starts changing both metaphorically and literally he's taken into what is essentially a dissection lab where we find that they have been conducting incredibly unethical experiments in an attempt to unlock the use of their technology. Yeah, let's let's back up for just a second here. So our our main our main protagonist, if you can call him that, uh, Vikas, is your standard ineffectual bureaucrat, and in the process of the evictions, he, through his own stupidity, gets exposed to an unknown chemical that starts turning him into a prawn. Literally. And this transformation is, there is some body horror here, but it's not egregious or excessive. We just get to watch as this, as this slow transformation literally alters his body it starts with the forearm, and then I believe by the end of the main story that we're told here, we see that it's gone all the way through to his shoulder and started into his torso. And one of his eyes. And one of his eyes. Uh, but that is a slow process, and like that transformation, that level of transformation, takes more than three days of exposure, after exposure, I should say, to this unknown chemical. And... It is the physical transformation that enables him to start undergoing the mental transformation where he starts to see the prawn as more than just the other that is to be kept over there, TM. And as these things progress and he starts getting treated like them, TM, is when he starts really refocusing, which... Uh, so I and I think I think we can now get back to where you were going because... Yeah, which, uh, as he's changing more and more, and they're realizing he might be the key to unlocking this technology, they take him down to this this dissection lab, and it's a charnel house. Yeah. It is the only scene harder to watch than their entry into that lab and the ensuing weapons testing against live targets. Three guesses what the live targets are. Is when they come back later in the movie with a sympathetic prawn character who sees this and just blue screens. Yeah, the the charnel house we see, there is some... I mean, okay, so these, these are all... These are all prawns, so we're not seeing dissected humans on the table, but it's still done well enough to evoke the same kind of reactions. There There is even a scene where you see a baby prawn dead on one of the dissection tables. And it's just, it's yeah, it is absolutely awful. And all of that awful serves the story. It is important. It needs to be there to give us context, but it is hard to watch, but that's not all this movie has to offer us. No, it's, it's not. Now, before we go, I do want to touch a little more on the weapons testing. I, I I know it's it's rough, but 
that that weapons testing sequence was brutal because that's really where Vicus sees truly just how much they hate the prawns and how much they think of him as just a test subject now when they are literally torturing him to get him to fire these weapons and then later at a live prawn yeah like like i said it's hard to watch necessary but hard to watch but we do have other things going on in this movie again not all of it is lighthearted like lighthearted in this movie don't belong in the same room together really no they but it's a compelling story with lots of important things that need to happen and one of the main vehicles we get for that is i mean they they present everything as like sort of a documentary of like oh discussing what happened after the fact so we get some foreshadowing early on but as you pointed out in the note session they don't shoot the entire movie that way so we do get more intimate characterizations between various elements that wouldn't have been caught either on a security camera or the documentary crew or whatever yeah and that's one of those things that so many movies that try to do that documentary presentation they fail at because they try to do everything documentary and you end up with these really convoluted ways of saying oh there just happens to be a camera there yeah they dispense with that at the points where it needs to be dispensed with and i think that's what really makes it work for this movie because we get to see the story that's being told and then the story that actually happened yeah which is an interesting take on things and what makes that work is our our characters of course we've got our narrative focus vicus who is not necessarily a good person but he's also not a monster a little bit of monster yeah a bit of monster like i said he's not a good person i do not like him as a person but we also have sharper contrast with the characterizations of his father-in-law and boss smith who is an absolute monster yeah who is willing to sacrifice his son-in-law for oh hey maybe we can use weapons yeah we also have uh kubis the leader of the paramilitary crew who is vikas describes him and his crew as out of control cowboys more than once and it is an apt description Kubis is the guy that uh, he has one job and that's killing prawns and he loves his job he loves his job a little too much but we also have a few sympathetic characters we've got the prawn we come to know as christopher johnson and his son who i believe goes unnamed in the film I think Christopher Johnson is the only prawn we get that we get a name from. Yeah, like they mention one is, uh, has a designation early on when they're trying to get paperwork signed, but I don't think that's like a real name or anything. I'm not sure if that's the prawn's designation or the residence's designation. Yeah, it's it's not made clear, which just further shows some of the inequity going on here. 
But Christopher Johnson is a very, he really is the only real sympathetic character in this film that you can 100% say there's no ambiguity about your sympathies for him. He is designed to be a sympathetic character. He just wants to go home. He wants to go home. And after he sees the lab and shuts down briefly, his goals shift slightly to, I want to go home and then bring back help. Yeah. And Christopher Johnson is, interestingly enough, the most human character in this movie. It's the portrayal, the physical performance, because I'm sure you were right in mentioning in the note session, we're pretty sure these were mo-capped with their body language, because the body language on display here is very well done. Uh, I mentioned in the note session there was an error with my subtitles at first that I did eventually get resolved and go back and rewatch the scenes, but I was watching the scenes with the prawns and not getting the, the subtitles that are supposed to pop up to tell me what they're saying. And I could still kind of tell what was going on based on their body language and physical interactions. Now, I did go back and get that context later, but the fact that the body language and everything was betraying everything on what is, yeah, still a bi largely bipedal species, but still not human. Yeah, and it was the same with uh, Christopher's facial expression when he first sees Vikas's arm. It's just that uh, it, you, you, you can almost hear him just thinking, oh, fuck, what's going on now? Yeah, he, he, he looks at it, figures out what's going on, and he just immediately is just, is just this resigned, of course. And I do find it absolutely hilarious at the, enough that I put this in my notes that, of course, 20 years of work screwed up by one entitled white guy figures. Yep. Because as Vikas is going through this transformation, he ends up back in District 9, the only place he can really go that would afford any relative safety whatsoever from the forces pursuing him. He stumbles upon Christopher Johnson again. And Christopher Johnson's like, hey, I can I can fix that, but I need the stuff you took. And Vikas's entire motivation at that point for even assisting Christopher Johnson at all is I want to be human again. I want to go back to my life. And that comes up repeatedly throughout his choices through as the story progresses, because okay, you all remember how I said he was not a good person? After the dissection lab and Christopher Johnson's main goal shifts from I want to go home to I want to go home and then come back with help because his people are being butchered, he informs him, oh, no, it'll be three years. And Vikas just flips out, cold clocks him, tries to steal his ship, gets shot down. Like, it's just one selfish dickhead move after another. Until everything goes so completely pear-shaped that Vikas gives up on his own goal. Yeah. And of course, Vikas's whole bullshit of stealing the ship and everything, there's one thing that you don't even mention that he does in that. He also seriously endangers Christopher's son. Yeah. And to be clear, it is very clear that Christopher's son is not an adult prawn. He is a child. He is a very intelligent, very quick-thinking child, but he is still a child. Yeah. And everything kind of culminates in this big knockdown, drag-out showdown between all the various factions we've seen up to this point. We've got 
MNU and their paramilitary boys. We've got Vikas and Christopher Johnson caught in the middle. And then on the other side of this equation is we've got the Nigerian gangsters that have been exploiting the pawns this whole time for trying to also control their weaponry and technology. And they too realize that Vikas can control the weaponry and think that they can use him to gain control of the weaponry and therefore gain control of the world. Which brings us to the overarching themes that are on display throughout this story is, first off, we've got the commentary on what, again, I call middle-class racism, where it's like, it's always okay to be a racist prick until it happens to you or someone you know in it. And, of course, there's also the underlying current of the root of all evil is human capitalism, because, again, everybody is trying to control these weapons for... It's, it all comes down to money. Even Even the Nigerian gangsters that want to control these weapons, it's about money and control for them, just like it is for the MNU and the MNU's unseen but kind of mentioned political and corporate allies. Yeah, the the MNU, by the way, was a multinational unit or something like that. Yeah. It was, basically, it was the task force assigned to make sure the aliens were safe and comfortable, <clears throat> you know, controlled. Yeah. And we see these themes throughout the movie um, as it goes, and really it's expertly presented. And I think that it's probably one of the, again, hard to watch in spots, but one of the better displays of those themes using an alien species as a stand-in for all the various minorities that have been oppressed and subjugated and exploited throughout human history. Yeah, because kind of interesting thing here regarding the exploitation and subjugation, this movie, both the concept and name, is based off of an actual place and event, District 6 in Cape Town, which was a multiracial district that got leveled by the apartheid government to make room for more white people. So this isn't very far off from things that really happen in the real world. Yeah, even the exaggerated things are still have basis rooted in certain historical actions taken against certain oppressed minorities yes even the abattoir that is the dissection lab yep i'm not gonna name specifics but if you pay attention to history you know exactly what i'm referencing here i just don't want to pull that card right now for ratings (laughs) i mean there's there's so many that have done that really yeah because it's always there's always some racist jerk who looks at a minority and goes, well, they are the other. We must study them to learn how to utilize them. And it almost inevitably ends up with horrible physical torture. Why is it always torture? It's always torture. Why is it always torture? Uh, I don't know. So, yeah, this this big culmination of the factions clashing 
ends up with basically what the last like 20 minutes of the movie or so it's just this one enormous action sequence which that is where you get the payoff from all this slow build you get this just epic action sequence you know not that but there's also the whole story behind everything but yeah and this action sequence by the way is where a lot of the marketing as this cheesy sci-fi action came from this is all like the last parts of the movie where we're getting all of these actions. There's a little bit of action-y stuff in the uh, initial let's go serve the eviction paper stuff where they've got a few factions that open fire on the MNU guys and then there's a little play. But it's not the focus of that scene. The focus of that scene is the systemic bureaucratic oppression and relocation of these of these uh, of the species. No, most of our action is literally just that last like 20 minute major conflict um there was also the 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 mnu invasion yeah and then then the they do stage a two-man raid on mnu to retrieve the mystery fluid so they can the MacGuffin, the MacGuffin, and power the thing and do the thing and and complete their goals and this action sequence gives us some amazing hardware both human and alien the on the human side of it, we've got you know, your standard fare, your standard assault rifles, grenades, pistols, etc. Um, the Beretta M9 features heavily. It's it's Cuba's sidearm of choice. They've got some really nice heavily armored trucks. One of which actually survived filming because they actually built those armored trucks. Nice. Built on Toyota bodies. Very nice. And then we also get to see one of my favorite pieces of human hardware. The NTW-20 Anti-Materiel Rifle. Or as I like to refer to it, 20 millimeters of you. This is also the first time that particular rifle has appeared in a movie. Which I find fascinating. I am I knew that fact already because, uh, no secret by now, I'm a weapons nerd. But the NTW-20 has such a unique and cool space-age sci-fi profile that you'd think it would have made it into more movies by now. So it is interesting to me that this was the first film it was shown in, and it is used to great effect here. It is it is used, interestingly enough, it is not... So typically speaking, when you've got an action movie or a video game or something like this where you've got the really big gun, it's there to be the really big gun and show massive destruction against soft targets. In this movie, that rifle was actually used in the correct way. It's an anti-material rifle. What material were they aiming at? A mech. An alien mech with some of the coolest toys in the whole movie. Now, the variety of alien guns we see throughout the movie are totally awesome. And we've got one that basically shoots lightning. We've got one that just explodes. Literally just... Yeah, uh, we've got another one that is some sort of kinetic projection system. Like Fusro Da in a gun. And so all of those are cool, but the mech knocks it out of the park because it takes all of those various disparate military prawn technologies and combines them into one really awesome robotic armor. That is by that is small arms bulletproof. Yeah, like they unload on it in close quarters until they run out of ammo and barely scratch the paint. And then in response, it just annihilates them. And that was on autopilot. 
one of the cool things they did is there's a weapon feature on it where as they're shooting it, it collects all the bullets in this like ball. And you're like, oh, cool. Magneto defensive thing. Then, of course, me, I'm like, I, I knew it wasn't magnets because lead doesn't get attracted to magnets. Shush you. <laughs> and then it repels them back at them when they when they run out of ammo. Later on, though, when it's piloted by Vikas, he uses it to pick up and launch a pig carcass. So this is actually a zero-point energy manipulation field. In other words, a gravity gun. One of the cool things when it collects the bullets and, and projects them back it doesn't like just project them back like oh it shot them back it just basically collects them and scatter shot in the general direction yeah it takes this big ball of lead and just shotguns it in, through the room killing almost everybody else in that room interestingly enough the sensory scanning system was also running enough that it detected vikas who at this point is registering as a prawn to its sensors and was still angling its response to not hit him, which is really cool, not only from a cultural technological standpoint, but it's just really cool from an execution standpoint because watching the system work was really cool. Honestly, the action sequence was the highlight of the movie for me, watching all this, these various toys go on display because, I mean, he had the lightning gun, he had the, the butta 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 alien gun, which is basically their version of a machine gun, uh, shoulder rockets, and this machine operates on such a level that at one point, as Christopher Johnson is about to complete his goal and make it back to the ship and leave, Kubas fires an RPG-7 meaning to blow up the shuttle that's being lifted to the to the mothership. And Vikas and the mech just goes, yoink, right out of the air. Of course, he then doesn't let go of it quick enough and loses that arm when it detonates in hand. But the fact that injured in an unfamiliar system that he's not trained on, utilizing the system, he was still had fast enough reflexes to pull a rocket-powered projectile out of the air. And that wasn't with the gravity gun. That was just mechanical. I just think that that was really cool. And that let Christopher Johnson get to the to the ship. And that, that kind of ended our story. And, of course, we do get to see uh, Kubis... Uh, get get his uh, at the hands of an angry mob of prawns. It was quick, but oh, it was gruesome. He deserved it. Fortunately, they didn't show it up close. They could have gone in. No, they backed out and let us fill in the blanks a little bit. Uh, overall, I think that one of the things that really makes this film work is that it really does only show us what we need for the story it tells. It is telling a specific story inside this overarching world of what's going on. And that story, it, the, the end of that story is not the end of the story. There are so many questions left unanswered, so many things we don't know. But it all works so well because it contains 
exactly what it needs to to tell the specific slice of the story that they're talking about. You know, there are so many questions like, you know, where did the prawns come from? Why did they end up on Earth? You know, does, does Christopher come back? Do, is he able to save Vikas? What, what, what do they do about the now three million prawns that are on Earth? It's, there's so much, and there's so much room for a sequel that we're probably never going to have. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to Two Idiots and a Dog. If you like what we do, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash t-i-a-a-d-media. That's t-i-a-a-d-media, all one word. If you want to send kaiju fan mail or reach out to the idiots for anything, you can email us at t-i-a-a-d-media at gmail.com. Again, that is t-i-a-a-d-media at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. Links can be found on Patreon, in our email signature, and on our SoundCloud page. We would also like to give a special thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon. Especially these idiots. Random Warrior and Rain. If you want to hear your name included here, you can support us at the Honorary Idiot Tier on Patreon. 